the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 444, or 444, for Sunday, April 7th, 2013. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek of the show, where you send in questions, you send in tips, we answer your questions, we share your tips. We all share cool stuff found every now and again, and I'm sure in today's show we'll have probably some cool stuff found. Regardless, we all come together here to learn a little something new about the Mac and Apple products here from Durham, New Hampshire on this Sunday afternoon. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fearful, Connecticut, ready to learn at least three things about the Mac. This is or four things. Holy cow. Because four, we're, we're, we're into oh, fours. Today. We are into fours today. That's right. Uh, yes. This is John F. Braun. How you doing, John? Fantastic. Lantastic, I'd like to say. All right. Uh, you know what? Let's, uh, I have a feeling just based on our, our limited pre-show banter that we didn't have much of today, but uh, I have a feeling this one's going to go off the rails uh, in a good way. But, uh, but let's start with the agenda what? and, and see, and see what happens. So, uh, so I leave that to you, my friend, to, uh, to address Frank with his question. I'm going to address Frank because I've run into this Go. as well. So Frank says, just started using iCloud to share pictures from a MacBook to an iPad too. Got about 2,000 uploading, but photo stream on both devices hits 1,000 and then starts deleting pictures to make room for the new ones. So it hovers between 998 and 1,000. My photo library shows all 2,000. Any help on how to make all 2,000 show up on both devices? I'm way new to using iCloud and iPhoto. Is it a matter of just swapping them out from the cloud or a setting I can adjust? Thanks. And my response was as follows. The photo streaming library is always a thousand or fewer. What he's seeing, though, is the side effect of one of the settings in one of the other programs that talks photo stream. Um, and this thing you got to remember, photo stream, in some cases, like from an iOS device, you can view just the photo stream. But within the photo app, something different typically happens. And at least in this case, so I'm looking at my setup. So I have aperture and I will see, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, pictures from the photo stream from the past stored in libraries. That's because I have it set up and, and I, I would say that's the case here as well. Although it's iPhoto, um, you have it set to auto import things from photo stream. And that's part of the various preferences. Uh, uh, you're talking about uh, iPhoto on his Mac, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, and, and uh, so either iPhoto or Aperture, if you have it set up and I believe it defaults to that, then what you will see is this discrepancy and that you have more photos stored on your uh, computer. Or I, I, I don't know if this is a, a setting on a, a iPhoto on the iOS. I, I don't have that at this point. Well, you, you do. I mean, you have, you have it um, on your, your iPhone and it's the same on the iPad in the photos app. You can see your photo library if you've signed into iCloud on your iOS device, but it only brings in those thousand and it does not auto copy them into your library. So the only way to get those, uh, all of your photos onto your, let me think about this. The only way to get that onto your machine or one way to get it onto your machine. Is it the only way would be to sync from your Mac directly 
and and copy all of those photos into an album on your on your device. Uh, now, of course, you can do that over Wi-Fi, but it is a uh, you know, you have to sync it as far as copying from the photo stream in. I don't think that's doable. Um I don't think with the Apple tools, I think in this case, you want to look at something that, that is, uh, well, and a lot of the cloud services are, uh, do have modes that are specific to photos. So, you know, Dropbox and sugar sync and all that, you may want to consider looking at a third party service if you want to sync, uh, because I, uh, photo stream will not do it for you. Well, it you will, can, if you it, want to do it manual, if you're willing to do it manually, I mean, you can go into, if you go into photo stream on your iPhone or iPad, uh, you know, you go to the photos app, uh, click on photo stream at the bottom and then go into my photo stream and hit edit. You can now start selecting photos and there is a button at the bottom that says save and you can save those to albums on your phone. But but it's not an automatic process and could get tedious. So, uh, you know, there, there's better ways. Right. right. Yeah. Well, the other thing I pointed out is that you could to maximize the number of photos is just actively purge uh, photo stream because it will. Uh, mm. fill up in all likelihood with photos that you don't want. And, and uh, I don't think it's, it's reasonable to try to catch them at the point they're being taken though. You could try that as well, but every now and then you may want to purge your photo stream, which you can do because I remember you and I were shaking our fist at Apple because you couldn't do that. And they, they listened to us. And, right. Right. That's right. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> but you know, I do, um, I use HDR mode uh, on my camera. Uh, and if you don't know about this on your iPhone, I think it's the iPhone 4S and later, right? You do not have it on yours, John, your iPhone 4. Yeah. Oh, you no, do? the 4 has it. Okay, so. Yeah, HDR being high dynamic range, which is a special way of taking photos. And you turn this on by going in, when you're in the camera is one way to turn it on. Tap on options uh, at the top of the screen and then, and then you just slide HDR on. It does disable the flash because it's essentially taking, I think, three separate pictures and then sort of merging them together with this, this algorithm that Apple has sort of baked into typically the phone. Yes. Typically what happens is it takes it at high regular and low exposure and then using a magical algorithm blends them together. And if it works, then it can be pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Though sometimes it, it overdoes something and it looks almost cartoonish, but uh, right. it depends on what you're trying to do on my iPhone five. It, Apple's algorithm is pretty, pretty mellow in terms of the cartoonish thing. It, it tends not to happen all that often. Um, the, the strangest thing you'll get is taking pictures in the sunlight where everything has this like similar brightness, but sometimes that's actually a good thing. But the reason I leave HDR on is because I find them, uh, I find that the, the pictures, it takes a regular picture and I have it set to save both, which you can do in the settings. So I save the regular picture that I take and the HDR one. It, almost always the HDR one is in better focus than the regular one. And I'm not sure why that is. I mean, my guess is it's because the phone is, you know, that much more stabilized um, once the HDR stuff is happening kind of after the fact. But uh, but I do I do delete almost immediately right there in the camera. I take a look at both pictures and immediately decide which one to get. And I delete the other one. And for the most part, it doesn't even make it to the photo stream because I'm doing it so quickly after, you know, after taking the, the photo. Okay. Oh, I see another thing here. Okay. This could be a solution uh, from our chat room here. Uh, someone said, I share some of the photos with myself as a shared photo stream. Hmm. That's right. You can That's do shared smart. photo streams. 
outside of the photo stream, photo stream. So, right. Hmm. And then you can do it on a device by device basis. That's really smart. And we'll say hello to, uh, to the, to everyone in our chat room today. It's pretty full in there. Um, at MacGeekUp.com slash slash stream. Well, that was weird. I got a weird audio hiccup on that. Did you hear that, Chun? Did you hear my audio fade away to nothing? Or was that just locally for me here? That was just you, man. Okay, good. Uh, Is everything okay over there? I don't think so, but, uh, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make it through. But yeah, that's a good idea because that way you get to, if you've got multiple iOS devices or even macOS devices, you can kind of pick which photo streams go to which ones. And I like that. I like, I like the choice. That's smart, man. Or uh, woman. I don't know. You're, I haven't you really have, dabbled you have an anonymous name in the chat place, so. though. What's that, John? I haven't really dabbled with shared photo streams. I have quite a few of them. I've got, in fact, you, there's probably some that you would want to be on. I have one from uh, Allison Sheridan. Uh, a couple from Macworld this year from Allison and one from Kirshen from, from Macworld too. So. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Are we good on, uh, on photo stream nuances? I learned, I learned stuff. That's, you know, that's the idea, right? Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> we will go to a, a quick tip from, uh, from Anthony. And Anthony was uh, was telling us about a couple of things. And one of the uh, things he mentioned is he said, uh, after reading an article at Mac Fix It, he said, I loaded something called X-Protect Plugin Protector uh, on my Mac. And what this will tell you is it checks against, uh, I guess it's checking against Apple's database, John. Um, and it... Uh, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes and everything here, but um, it, it will tell you if the plugins that you have um, match what Apple will allow you to run in terms of Java and flash, right? Cause Apple's X protect engine sits in the background of your Mac and make sure that you aren't running an older version of these things that might be susceptible to, you know, various exploits. And so it's it's two versions of Java, the one in the, the plugin in the browser, the the runtime Java that you would run apps and then um, and then the Flash player. And it'll tell you what you have locally on your Mac and what X protect says you have to have. So uh, so it's good stuff. And it sits in your menu bar. It's a it's a happy little thing. So uh, so thank you, Anthony, for for sharing that with us, because because uh, it's it, it's an excellent tip. Cool, right, John? You can see how it works right there on the page. Protect me. That's that's the idea. All right. Um, okay, so let's go. Let's answer another question here, and then and then we'll talk about uh, our first sponsor, which will be Squarespace. But we'll talk about. We'll answer Brent's cable modem question first here. Um. So, uh, Brent was having issues with his cable modem, and. Uh, and was looking at the logs. Now your cable modem logs can, can be, can be crazy things. I'm trying to see if there's a, if there's a question here, or if this is simply going to be sort of an, a, a primer on cable modems and may wind up meandering here. Um, but uh, you know, we, we of course get questions from folks all the time from you uh, about cable modem issues. And there are some sort of basic things that are important to know. The first thing is that you can see what's up to a degree, you can see what's up with your cable modem and, uh, and you can do that by going to a web browser. You got to be on your local network at the time and you go to a web browser and go to the URL, uh, 192.168.100.1. 
and that will bring up a web page for your cable modem. If there's a password there, uh, if it asks you for a password, try Googling the model number of your cable modem and see about the password because most of the time it's posted out there. So, um, but there, there's a couple things that you can look at. And Brent was having some troubles and some of them were related to some of these parameters and some weren't. But, uh, but what you're looking for are the first thing you're looking for are power levels on your cable modem. There's, there's two sets because there's your cable modem is a bi-directional device, meaning that uh, data goes in and out downstream is coming from the internet or from your cable provider to you upstream is from you to your cable provider. And both of those channels need to be working in order for your internet connection to work. Uh, you can't request any, you can't get anything from the internet without requesting it or acknowledging that you got it. And so therefore you need this sort of two way thing. Even if all you're doing is browsing web pages, the downstream is a power level reported. Uh, they're both actually power levels reported in uh, DBMV, uh, decibel millivolts, I guess. I don't know. Um, someone in the chat room or John, you'll, you'll figure out what that yeah, actually means. That's right. It's that a right? relative measure. Yes. Mm. So, uh, the downstream should be zero, but can be anywhere from uh, negative 15 to positive 15 or pr- preferably negative 10 to positive 10. And then the upstream should be anything they're now saying anything lower than 55 um, used to be 50, but I guess they've either increased their tolerance or just increased the numbers so that people don't complain as much. But, uh, but I'm running mine much higher than I ever would prefer to at 49 on the uh, upstream. That's the amount of power your cable modem needs to generate to get a clean signal up the, uh, up the path. And, uh, and, and, you know, uh, if, as long as it's lower than that number, you should have a, a clean signal and it shouldn't be flaking out. But if you're close to that tolerance number, then it, it can start to give you some, uh, some issues. Now, you can increase these numbers, make them better for you or worse with the splitters that you have in the way. And this is sort of what Brent had. And Brent uh, told us that he had this splitter that's coming in. And if you look on your cable modem splitter, you will see... Um, if it's a two way splitter, you'll see most likely, uh, you know, an input and then two outputs and next to each of those outputs will likely be written negative 3.5 DB. This is very much related to those numbers that you're now seeing in that web page. And if you, um, for every DB that you take off of the signal, what's happening when you split the signal, you lose seven DB, um, total and, it typically makes you lose three and a half from each side of the splitter. And that's the cost of splitting the cable signal for every DB that goes, that you lose. So for every negative one from a splitter, you add one to the upstream because it means you have to push that much more power out to get the clean signal out and you reduce one from the downstream. Uh, So uh, you know, your downstream will, will con- if your downstream was at zero and you put a negative 3.5 dB splitter in, you'd now be at negative 3.5. If your downstream was at five, you know, you'd be at 1.5 uh, and, and upstream works the opposite way. So if you need to tweak these parameters and you've got all kinds of splitters in line, you can start doing the math and it, the closer you can get your typically the closer you can get your cable modem to the raw source of the cable coming in. 
the better you'll be, assuming that it's not some super hot signal coming in that you actually do need to buffer down. And if you do need to buffer it down, then that's what splitters can do for you, too. But you can also get a splitter if you're already at the very, very tip top of your of your chain and you still can't get enough signal in. You can call the cable company and they should come fix that for you. But if you don't want to call them or you can't or you've tried, you can also look for a splitter. Um, again, each splitter needs to lose 7 dB. Most of them are built to lose three and a half per side. But you can find splitters that are called tap splitters where you lose six from one side and only one from the other. And uh, and so you can put your cable modem on the one side and that can be helpful, too. So. Yeah, good, John. I, I hear you chuckling over there. Not chuckling. You thought any, I was chuckling? I, I don't know. Any thoughts on this? Oh, absolutely. Go. So, number one, uh, there's utility here, which uh, I may have talked about in the past, but I'll talk about it again, and it's called DocsDiag. Now, it's a Java program. Don't freak out. What it does is, so, as we pointed out here, there is typically a way to see a lot of the high level uh, values of what your cable modem is doing as far as power levels and stuff like that. And it's the, yeah, one nine two one six eight one hundred dot one, I guess, or whatever yep. it is. Um, but there's also a way to run this little program called docs diag and uh, we'll link to it uh, or you could just search. I mean, if you search for it, it'll come right up and it's a, a Java utility that you run from the command line and it will tell you way more. It can actually get you in trouble if you do the wrong thing. It could do some, well, no, it could do some things uh, upstream that your cable company may, may not be happy about. So I would use it for only reading things and not setting things. Uh, but it'll show you a lot of things, including some figures that a lot of the cable modem pages don't report, but the device itself does. Like I think one, Dave, that is important in the discussion about power levels and all that is a signal to noise ratio. And a lot of the pages, or at least my, uh, it's a scientific Atlanta Doxis 2, I guess, cable modem. It doesn't show that, but DoxDiag will. And and that's a figure that sometimes can help you figure out where 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 the problem is perhaps in the cable. And that's another thing I want to offer here is that one thing you may want to do to try to solve your problem. Uh, number one, I, I, I would agree is remove splitters. So you get maximum power, but you may have a run of cable that either got chewed on by a critter, which certainly happens. Yes. <laughs> uh, in these parts, uh, 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 more so where I used to live than where I live now. And that there were just lots more trees and lots more critters and they see, and apparently I don't know they like the taste of the plastic or something. <laughs> I saw the other day, Dave, why would you do this? Um, it was my, uh, my gas grill. I, I fired it up one day and I'm like, well, something's wrong here. I hear gas. I smell gas, but it's not working. Oh. Something had decided to chew a hole into the, into the cable line. going Whoa. between the tank and the grill. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why would you want to even chew that? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're trying to take me out. You can't, you can't <laughs> smack sense into stupid, John. <laughs> But Dave, I think the critters may be, may be getting smart, man. They're like, yeah, you know, gas explosion. Yeah, we'll that's right. Then we can have the house. That's right. <laughs> if we blow up that dude, the house is ours. Um, so I, I will point out one thing about Doc's Diag. Uh, my guess is that most of our listeners will not be able to use it because the big, uh, the big three cable companies all block that access to your cable modem. Uh, you're you're no, on you're on. Cable last Vision. I ran it, it gave me well, and you you're able to use it. I'm I'm not on Comcast here, and I don't think Time okay. Warner can do it either. So all yeah. right, well, it's easy enough to try. It's try, yeah, it's totally <laughs> worth trying. In fact, 
I should try it again. I'm pretty sure that I won't be able to use it, but you know, stranger things. Right. So. Did I lose you, John? No. Okay. okay. All right. No, we're good. I think that, okay. that, that was my point here. There's a utility that lets you see yeah. more. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So I've been we'll, thinking go, of actually doing another. Uh, actually, I've been thinking uh, because the, uh, the quality of the cable that's running from the first connection on the side of the house is questionable and that I didn't put it there and I look at it and it's painted over and stuff and it's kind of twisting and turning and I don't know how long it's been there. I've been thinking actually just it couldn't be a bad thing for me to replace that because it's technically my responsibility from the point it comes to the house. Sure. Yeah, or maybe it's not, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I should check the type of cable and see if, it, you know, because there are different classes of cable. Your cable, um, your cable company will likely do more than you might think. They they really want you to have high quality signals in your house. And so I've I've called them up before with with line issues, both with the cable modem and with the TV. And they come out and almost immediately start replacing cables and connectors in the house because they, they just don't want crummy connectors in there okay. because it because well, because they figure, all right, we're on site. We know that these are the kind of things that, you know, I mean, a crummy connector uh, or a crummy crimped end can be the difference of about a decibel, right? So if you've got four crimped, you know, connectors in, in the path there, well, that's four DB potentially that you can get back. Uh, maybe yeah, more yeah. if it's, you know, you know, so they, they, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've replaced the cable from from the the street to the house once, and and yeah. it helped. Yeah, totally. And it was a problem, I think, because yeah. I don't know the last time it was replaced, and you know, it was it was uh, subject to the elements and all that. The only problem is, I think I, you saw me post this, is that my vo- my power levels are within spec. They're not yeah. ideal, but they're within spec. So, arguing that it's you know a problem with the connection could be difficult. Well, it depends on. Who I talk to. That's the, you know, it's always just any of these things. It's you and one other person having a conversation. And once the tech comes to the house, then it's even easier to get them to do stuff. You know, I mean, if within reason, you know, so. Fun. All right. But what the one thing, the, the one thing your cable company most likely won't let you do is, is host your own web server. Uh, and you wouldn't want to anyway, cause you need to leave a computer on all the time and you're managing a web server and all that. And what I'm getting to is what I alluded to before, which is our first sponsor of the show, which is Squarespace. Uh, now Squarespace is it's a, they're a web host, but they are so much more than just a web host. And if you haven't checked out Squarespace yet, I'm shocked because we've been talking about it for for a while here, but that's okay because we're here to remind you again, Squarespace. If you visit squarespace.com slash MGG, uh, you will immediately start designing your web page. That's the first thing you do. You say, let's get started at, literally. And then boom, you're picking a template and they've got thousands of templates and they're all professionally designed and, and, and categorized by purpose. So if you just want like a personal blog, that's one thing. If you want an online store, that's another thing. And you can start creating your website and literally within five minutes, you will have the shell of your website. And probably within 10, you've got a title and you've got some content in there and you haven't even, you know, before you even thought about it, you've got this website uh, and then you set up an account and, uh, and you can visit the site and you're good to go. Uh, if, and when you are ready to buy, 
and, and it's weird because you aren't signing up. You aren't paying first. You're, you're setting up your website first so that you can just get a feel for how it works. There's, there's quite literally no commitment because they don't even offer you the option of committing before you've gone in and designed your site. But once you're ready to commit, uh, if you use the coupon code MGG4, uh, because we are in the fourth month of the year. So MGG4 uh, gets you 10% off of whatever it is you buy then. So uh, so definitely make sure you use that uh, when you're going to buy. But, you know, you can do all kinds of great things. You can set up a, a, a shopping cart and they can take your payments for you. You know, totally easy, totally built in. Uh, you can you can do anything. If you want, uh, you, you can... Set up your website would be, uh, you know, your uh, custom name dot, you know, I could be like Dave the nerd dot Squarespace dot com or whatever. Or uh, if you have your own domain or want to register your own domain, you can do that there, too, and then point your custom domain. So it's not my Dave the nerd dot com is hosted elsewhere, but you could just point Dave the nerd dot com right at Squarespace and boom, there it is. So totally flexible. Uh and it's a lot of fun just messing with their templates and uh, and they've got blogging engines in the background there. If you want to employ those and you don't have to, but you can, it's really flexible. Drag pictures in from your desktop, literally. And I say that uh, sort of casually, but it's magic. You just grab a picture on your desktop, you drag it into your web browser and there it is on the page uh, and it's on the server and it's already uploaded and it's, it's all right there. So check it out. Squarespace.com slash MGG is uh, is the place to start. And then remember MGG four, because we're in the fourth month of the year for, uh, for your 10% off. So that's, uh, that's Squarespace. And uh, all right. You know, last, when do I tell you about the car? Okay, let's do this. (laughs) I knew this was going to get off the rails. Let me, let me, let me head us down this path because it's at least going to sound like it's, it's Mac geek cab content. How's that sound, John? Well, I think it is in a sense, and there are actually Mac tools one could use for some of this. But. Well, that's yeah, actually. So um, I, uh, I've been messing around with uh, I, I put parallels on my MacBook Air parallels eight on my MacBook Air recently, John, because uh, there actually isn't Mac software to mess with my car. But there is Windows software. And uh, and I went crazy with this earlier today. I mean, I had to get some stuff. I had to get a cable uh, which I was going to build and actually the parts to build it are coming, but I got impatient and because the parts are coming from China because you have to build a, uh, a an, uh, an ethernet to OBD connector, which is that, that diagnostic connector that you have in, in modern cars. I'll, I'll be more specific. You probably have an OBD two connector. That's correct. I do. And, and this will become important shortly. Okay. So, so I got, so I got impatient and there was this dude, um, that had helped out a ton on the BMW forums and was selling cables. And I thought, well, I'll just support this guy. So I bought a cable and it came in two days. And then I realized I didn't have an ethernet to USB adapter for my MacBook air. So I had to get one of those real fast. Um, but what's cool is, you know, I have to run the software in windows because the soft, that's how, that's how it works. But, um, I plug it into the car and then the car and the, the the Mac, because they're just plugged directly into each other and there's no router or anything, you have to wait a minute for them both to get DHCP addresses. So they, they're they literally on a network with each other and the car gets a DHCP and your, your, Mac, your, well, your Windows machine or your Mac or whatever does as well. And then you start with this software, you start pulling down settings. Now, 
it's funny because, you know, my car's German. And so all of the settings are in German, John. And so I have to use these cheat sheets so that I'm not because I could totally make render my car completely undrivable by messing with the wrong setting. You know, you you download the data from the car, you make your tweaks and then you kind of compile it and upload it back to the car. And like the dashboard reboots when I'm doing this stuff. And so if I mess it up, it's, you know, it's scary stuff. But, um, but it, but it, you know, it works and I've used the cheat sheets and there's a lot of people that have been down this path before me. And so I just follow, you know, I stay within the lines at least for now, but, um, but I added new, uh, I added a, a horsepower and torque displays on my, on uh, that I can pull up on my, on my car <laughs> screen. I, I added a, um, uh, I added the speed, digital speed limit to my, my center, you know, console display. I added, um, uh, it, uh, they, they, what does it call it? Efficient dynamics uh, histogram where it shows minute by minute what my gas mileage uses was for the last like 15 minutes or whatever. And uh, but the real reason I did it was because there's a button in my car to open my trunk. And then that button will not close my trunk because of some, you know, silly laws that we have here in the U.S. So I was able to change that. So now that that button will close the trunk as well as opening it. And it's like, OK, now I'm now I'm happy. But uh but yeah, I had to do it all in parallels, but it totally worked. I built the virtual machine. Actually, this is a cool thing. And and for those of you that haven't thought about using parallels or VMware or really any uh, virtualization platform this way, think about this. I, I knew I was going to have to use it on my laptop because I wanted the computer in the car with me while I was you know messing around with this stuff. But I didn't want to build it on my laptop. And so I built the Windows install in parallels on my iMac at my desk while I was doing other things. And then once I got it all set, I got the software in there, I got everything right. I, um, I, I quit parallels, you know, I shut down windows inside it. I quit parallels. And then I just took that virtual machine and copied it to my laptop and boom, it launched on there because without any fanfare, because the, the, the operating system windows running inside the virtual machine is only built. It's just built to run at a, in a parallels computer and it doesn't know what the host is. It doesn't care what the host is. Uh, so it, you know, windows doesn't complain. You can just, it's very, very portable and, and you can move things around. Of course, this is where virtualization started years ago. Uh, but now that we've had it on our desktops, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that these containers are really, truly portable. Uh, and if you do it in VMware, you can actually, you know, port to, a win, you know, a, a Dell machine or an Apple machine doesn't matter. They just bounce around. Mm -hmm. So, so it was fun doing all this stuff with the car. My family thinks right. I'm nuts, but, but, um, well, mine gets old school and you will of appreciate this yeah. here. So first I'm going to uh, paste a link to the article that I had to find. So mm -hmm. my car, say 94 Saturn SL2, right. Um, supports something called OBD one, which is yes. on board diagnostics one. Alas, this was the first version of the protocol. So, um, well, the one thing is that you, you know, a while ago, Dave, I think uh, they gave uh, at, at one of the Macworlds uh, in the goodie bag, we got the uh, Car MD, I think it is, a little device that will basically plug into OBD2 right. cars and suck the data out and link to the internet and tell you what's wrong and how much it's going to cost. But I don't have this. I only have one. And Dave, you know how you activate this? <laughs> You'll love it. So there's a connector in the car, but only three, it's like a 10 pin connector, but only three pins are active. And in order to get the car to tell you what's wrong with it. So actually to, to rewind a bit, what happened is that I was driving around the other day and all of a sudden my service engine soon light blinked. 
Yeah. And then went out and I'm like, okay, that's never happened before. So what does it mean? And on this car, the way you do this is you get, you basically go to this connector and you short two of the pins with something like a paper clip. Oh man. And then what happens is the check engine light will then flash the number of times indicating what the code is. And then if it's a subset, it'll blink the temperature light. But dude, it's so clever because this car has all analog gauges There's very, right. and, and lights. So how do you get it to talk to you? Now, there's also a serial data feed. And if I had the right computer, I think I could take out the codes itself. But this is a low tech, but I think brilliant way of, of doing this. And basically, it came up with the code. So first it blinks, uh, it blinks, then pauses, then blinks again, and that's a two-digit code. In this case, it first blinks 12, saying, okay, the system's working. Then it'll blink a code saying, okay, here's the other problem. And so the first one was, oh, transaxle code is coming. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And then it blinks the temperature light for the transaxle code. And in this case, it actually was one called no TCC or torque converter something. So there's something a bit wonky, but I I, uh, I actually looked it up on the site, and it's a solenoid, I think, for the uh, torque converter um, that is acting up. It, it's seeing weird things, but I just love the low-tech way of doing this. Yeah, that's and awesome. It blinks the lights, but the information, thank goodness for the internets, is that the information is available. I think somebody yanked it from a service bulletin or something from Saturn. Well, that's that's the trick, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Otherwise, then it would have been an interesting project because there is a serial data line in this connector. That's the third pin. So the two are, I guess, power. And if you short them, it says, okay, by the way, flash the, the lights. But it was just so much fun to do that. So what, one thing before we before we try and get this back on track here, you mentioned blinking lights. So, um, it, you know, my car's in, in German or, you know, all the, the codes are in German. And in order to find, there's you know, in each section of the car, there's there's probably, you know, 50 different codes. And you got to scroll through and find the one that you've read that you're supposed to edit and don't touch anything else. And But you got to look very carefully because they're not in alphabetical order or anything. And so I saw one, John, that said Das Blinken Lights. <laughs> Literally, there's a there's a thing in the car that says Das Blinken Lights. So uh, are you kidding me? That no. has to be a joke. No. Because <laughs> you and I know that one place that phrase came from was a poster that people used to put in their computer room. Yeah. Saying, uh, keep Germit and grabbing off of the, the basically with something in, you know, fake German saying, keep your hands off the computer and just look at the blinking lights. All right, man. Yeah. But I know. It said blinking. It says blinking lights. It's, there's no question. It was like, I, I thought of you immediately. I'm like, oh, he's, I got to tell him about this. And I was glad because I'd forgotten about it until you mentioned the blinking lights. So, all right. Um, I, I also think it's awesome that, that you and I are cosmically in sync on this stuff that because we didn't talk about it. This is the first time we've, we've talked about this. And yet for whatever reason, this week was the week that both of us decided to dive in. And, uh, and you know, it was Corey Emdick, the, uh, programmer, from BitSuites who wrote the Mac Geekab app. Uh, he and I have almost exactly the same car. His is a year newer than me, but we wound up buying the same color and everything. Um, and he was the one almost a year ago that, that convinced me, you know, you should mess with this. This is awesome. And of course, Corey was right. I mean, it's, it's totally geek paradise to, to be messing around with this stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I like that we're in sync, my friend, but last show we were in sync and, and I'd like to revisit some of these things. Uh, we talked a lot about backups last week and anytime uh, we talk about any topic, really things come in and, uh, and there've been a couple of things that, that came in. We also talked about, so we talked about backups and also two factor authentication 
And John, I think you, uh, you're going to kick us off into this next segment here with, with a comment uh, from Johnny. Is that right? <laughs> there we go. Yes. All right. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm I got I got I got to say one thing and then, and then we'll move on. Cause just so we can leave this other conversation behind. Uh, C. Grudy in the chat room says that there is a blue driver diagnostic scan tool that allows you to connect the car's OBD sensor to your iPhone or iPad, and you can read things there. So we'll put a link no to that in the show notes, way. too. I know. It's just too good. That's too good. All right. Anyway, so on to Johnny. I want to do that. All right. So hi, guys. Just an FYI. I've been using LastPass for a few years to manage my passwords. And about a year ago, I added YubiKeys to the authentication logon process. LastPass is highly convenient and adds the ability to generate and use secure passwords, but it also... Whoop, hold on. Okay. I had to move a window out of the way. It <laughs> frightens me. I want to make sure I get that right. And then it contains all of my passwords. <laughs> That's a good point. YubiKey adds a second factor by requiring a 44 character one time password that the hardware dongle generates in addition to my LastPass. Process requires paying for LastPass premium and buying the dongles. I have two and also some trust. When the process is set up, there's a handshake between YubiKey and LastPass servers to uh, initialize the process, but overall, it makes me feel better. Uh, that's cool. That's about it. It's, yeah. it's, it's a cool stuff found. Uh, we will link to it and it's, uh, it sounds like, you know, I checked it out and yeah. So, so they work together, uh, these, these two companies to, uh, get it to work and, uh, more factors are better. Assuming you don't lose one of your factors. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's an important note because a lot of times with this, in fact, with almost with every incarnation of this two factor thing that I've seen, um, it, if you lose either factor, you're out. You can't, you know, you need, you need something to get in and they can't reset it for you, which is part and, of the And security. sometimes I've seen like uh, some authentication systems will say, okay, well, you don't know this, but it's usually within the same realm. It's like, oh, you forgot the answer to this question. Well, how about the answer to that question? Well, with the two, I haven't seen with the two factors that stuff, are flexible enough to let you choose which of the generally recognized three factors you want to provide. Okay. Do I provide a biometric? Do I provide a token right. or a password? And can I choose which or how many? And typically you can't. So, or I haven't seen systems designed that way. I'm, I'm sure there are. Right. And that, okay, well, I'll just let you provide this one piece just this once. Just don't let it happen again. Okay. So that's right. Don't let it happen. <laughs> well, so Apple, I, I mentioned that I was in the process of, I was in my waiting period because I had to change my password with my Apple ID. So I couldn't move uh, to Apple's, two factor before our last show, but I, and I, I promised I would follow up and this is as good a time as any I did. Uh, and on Monday I converted my Apple stuff, my Apple ID to uh, two factor authentication. Now what's, there's some interesting things about this. You have your password and then uh, they set up your iOS devices and, or your SMS phones um, as recipients of the token that will be sent to you at the time that you need to log in. Right. So you, that's your second factor. But during the process, they make it clear that the um, security questions, you know, your mother's maiden name or whatever questions, you, your favorite teacher, whatever those questions are, are removed and are no longer used. So the only two factors are your password and your token. And then they also give you an, a recovery key that uh, that you are supposed to save somewhere. And then they make you type it back in after it's not displayed on the screen anymore. And that recovery key is enough to reset your password. So it, there is this, you know, I mean, it's not a back door, but 
it's your own personal back door um, that, uh, it, you know, that'll, that allows you in. However, what they don't, they, and then they go on to tell you, you're going to need your two factor stuff for these very specific things. And it's basically buying apps, uh, buying songs or managing your account. It's like, okay, that's great. And then I sort of realized throughout the week, like, wait a minute, you know, I also use this account for my iCloud stuff. Now I don't use it for mail, but, but, uh, regularly, but I can, and uh, I use it for my calendar and I use it for my contact syncing and all of that. And here's an important public service announcement. Apple's two factor authentication does not apply to your iCloud data. That is still just a single password and you or anyone with that password can get in. So it doesn't make your mail, your calendars, your contacts, any of that stuff safer. All it makes safer is managing your account and spending money uh, at Apple's store. That's it. Now, that's not the case with Google. With Google, once you move your Google account to two-factor, everything, including the calendars and the mail and all that stuff, are a two-factor. And the same with Facebook. If you move your Facebook account to two-factor, it's all there. So, um, so Apple's two-factor is clearly something I, I hope we're, we're seeing an iterative process, which is a lot of what we see from Apple, but I think they felt like they needed to do something quickly. And so they cobbled together. This is my, my gut feeling. Anyway, they cobbled together this, you know, two factor thing for managing your account and the money side of things. And hopefully the rest is coming. Um, but it'll probably require updates to iOS and that sort of thing so that it, it's smoother than uh, than it is with Google, where you've got to use custom passwords for things that don't support two factor and, you know, this kind of kludgy stuff. But for those of you that, that are doing it, it is important to remember that it's not everything. In fact, it's not most things uh, with your Apple two factor. So. I share. Any questions, John, any thoughts on that? I like it when you share. Mm. It's what we do. Um, Greg had something to share while we're on the two factor thing. Uh, we might as well jump to that. Uh, Greg says, I heard you guys talking about Google doing the two factor authentication. I set this up too, and I think it's a great idea. What I didn't hear you talk about is something I installed called the Google authenticator, uh, app for my iPhone. This app generates numbers for you every 30 seconds. It generates the token. So you don't have to use your SMS. Uh, it's handy and you can have, uh, the Apple support multiple accounts within it. And uh, and I used it earlier today and it works great and it's free uh, and all that stuff. So uh, so there you go. Sort of a, a cool stuff found. Oh, that's yeah. secure ID. Or at least uh, when I've seen this. Um, yeah, it's secure in, ID. In the corporate space. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a little thing you carry around with you, hopefully your keychain or something where you won't lose it. And it it creates a new number that's in sync with a server somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And if you, uh, when you log in, if you don't type in the right number, it's like, who, who are you? Yep. Yeah. A very cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's cool. And it, I mean, like I said, it, it totally works. It's, it was sort of a, a no brainer um, to, to make it work, you know? So, but actually that's not entirely true. It was a little kluky to set up and I'll use that word. Uh, but uh but once I, you know, it was, it was kind of weird. In fact, um, you, you download the app and then you visit a web page at Google and you say, I want to, you know, part of your account and you say, I want to add this iPhone. And then it puts a, uh, one of those 3d barcodes up on the screen 
or 2D, whatever you call them. What are they? 2D barcodes, 3D barcodes, John? The square ones with the funny looking, a QR code-ish um, kind Right of thing. now, they're, yeah, right now, current barcode technology is pretty much in the 2D realm. Okay. Okay. Maybe. I know. I, well, I wasn't sure. I knew that. Whatever. Okay. So anyway, uh, Google Authenticator, and then you, um, you have to take a picture or you have to aim your phone at it, and then the app authenticates with it. And it's like, okay, that's really you. So, it, which, is a, which is pretty cool in and of itself, that it just sort of like, you know, magically knows so so you know that's uh that's where we that's where we go with it that's where i'm drawing the line are you really drawing the line there is that what we're uh (laughs) is that how it's gonna be (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) all right okay uh so that was greg uh yeah okay well we also talked about backups so let's jump to eddie here and eddie had uh had had something to add that we we did miss he says uh i enjoyed your backup review and it made me review my own procedures my system is very similar to yours day with the exception of my off-site cloud storage and this is where the cool stuff found comes in i don't think i have heard you mention using amazon's glacier service it's very cost effective at a penny per gigabyte at the expense of the speed at which you can retrieve backups i figure that if i have such a disaster that i lose all my local backups i can wait 4 hours for amazon to make my cloud backups available and that's true the way glacier works is you can upload stuff to it but if you need to retrieve it might be available immediately but it also might take 4 hours for it to be put on a server that you can you can pull your data from um but as <laughs> no which hence is cool the name glacier hence, hence the name the glacier. Name glacier you got it that's right <laughs> It moves, but slowly. Um, But uh, he says, I use uh, as my client to this, I use ARQs uh, or the ARQ client from Haystack software. And I can't say enough good things about it. It allows me to encrypt my data, choose exactly what I want to back up and which service I want to use. I can use Glacier. I can use S3. uh, I can use S3RR. There's, you know, depending on what you want to pay for. So ARQ from Haystack is backup software for cloud backups, but they don't actually provide the cloud part. That's up to you to pick which cloud you want uh, and whatever works for you. So uh, he says, you also did make me think about buying two transporters and giving one to my parents. That way I could keep an offsite at their house and make it easier for them to have an offsite at mine. Uh, I have a hard enough time convincing them to back up regularly, let alone have an offsite backup. If I can set them up, is the t- transporter pretty, pretty much set and forget. And yeah, whatever you put out there will sink. Once you set it up, uh, it will just sink um, magically, just like we're doing with our Mac geek folder here, John. So, and I bet you could uh, set up something to copy your data, you know, up to there too. So it's good stuff. Thanks, Eddie. Uh, ARQ and Glacier. That's a good idea for cloud, for cloud stuff. So I had never heard of this before. Amazon Glacier. Yeah. They actually have a product with that name. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I guess it it, it 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 accurately describes what it's meant for, which is an archive. Yeah, it's not meant to be, you know, a snappy. Uh, right. Uh, Real time uh, storage thing. OK, right. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And someday you could thaw something from the glacier and then maybe bring it back to life. <laughs> Just like in the sci fi movies. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Love it. All right, so you have uh, you have a question from Tanel, I believe. Tanel, if if that is a or Tanil, I, I'm and I'm I don't know if we got that right. And I gotta go here and search for it. Where is he? And uh, we just we did just have a question in the chat room 
Um, somebody asked, does the Mac geek discount on the transporter still work? And yes, it does. The coupon code MGG still works for that. So, uh, I'm going to go to Neil. All right. I could get it wrong here. As long as you commit, that's all, that's all that matters. You're good. Uh, All right. In the last episode, you mentioned that you now prefer sugar sink to Dropbox. I will be interested in hearing why on a future episode. Well, this time has come. That's right. <laughs> I personally think at the present time, there is one advantage to Dropbox. More iPad apps can connect to it than SugarSync. This is very convenient. Uh, let's pause there because he has more to say. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about it, Maybe we won't. But uh, I said to him, uh, to me, Dave, uh, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. We can dig into it. But I like the ability of SugarSync to be both a sync service uh and they offer something specifically called their magic briefcase to kind of demonstrate this to you if you create an account you typically have that that spans all the the computers that are connected to it uh whereas dropbox really uh doesn't offer per machine syncing but it offers the other service and it's great for that and it, it does fine sharing either you know a personal account or a group account uh, but backing up a specific uh, contents of a specific machine, unless you whip something together with uh, Apple script or automator or something, I don't, I don't really think uh, it, it does very well in that respect. So that's though, though I will agree that it, it seems that the uh, Dropbox does have um, more exposure for uh, third party apps or iOS device access. So they all have their, their pluses and minuses. That's totally. what I got to say about that. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I like, I like sugar sink for, for that, for exactly that same reason. It's, it's, it's just better. You can be more specific. And, and like you said, John, you know, you can choose to sync one folder amongst all your computers, or you can only, you can sync it just amongst two of them, or you can just have it on one and the cloud and treat it either like a backup or as something that you want to access from your, uh, from your iOS devices, right? So it's, you know, but you're not forced to sync it to all your machines that are applied to the same account. And, you know, one other thing that they've done now, um, which is similar to what transporters doing, um, but of course in a very different way, but, but implemented sort of the same way is with sugar sync 2.0, the, the 2.0 software. Now you get a, a thing called sugar drive that's mounted. It's a, just a mounted drive all the time. That, that part was a little clunky when I first saw it, but now I understand. And what that gives you access to is from all of your Macs, you have access to what's on the cloud, which is everything. So even if let's say on my MacBook air, I don't have, uh, I haven't synced a folder down to it. As long as I'm online, I can go to this, uh, sugar drive and, and go to, you know, kind of navigate in the finder to my cloud and pull down data. It's all coming over the cloud. It's not synced, but at least you have access to it. Uh, at all times, which is pretty cool. And it's similar to kind of what transporter is doing. They hide the fact that they're mounting the transporter as a drive. I'm honestly not sure why, but, uh, but they hide it, but it, but it still works kind of the same way. You can, if, even if stuff's not synced down, you can still get at it um, in the same interface. So, so it's good stuff. I, and I agree, but I, but I still use Dropbox because there's apps that use it like, like uh um, text expander to sync things and one password to sync things. You know, it's just, it's, it's good. And, and everybody seems to have it. So it's good for that stuff too. Yeah. Good? I yeah. like it because I got a, a boatload of space on there for all the uh, affiliate things I did until they uh, kind of pulled back on that. But uh. 
Uh, they did at, at Dropbox or no sugar sync still has the affiliate thing. We can put your, we should yeah. put your affiliate code in the show notes. Generate it eh, up. Actually, I think both services, I got about 20 gigs and for what I use it for that. Uh, that's, that's enough. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I've got to me, uh, any of these, you know, the, the sad fact of the matter is Dave, any of these cloud services, the big pain in the neck and even some of the backup services. Yeah. Um, the whole, it all falls apart. If your upstream is limited. Well, yeah, you got to get, you got, I've got this smoking upstream now. I can do like one megabyte a second up to uh, the cloud. So things tend to cook. But here, my account with, uh, with these guys is a uh, two megabits up. Uh, yeah. The, the, the starting upstream. That's and what, they manage that very well because every time I run a speed test, it never gets even, even point oh oh. <laughs> It it measures that upstream like it was rationing out like <laughs> water in the desert. I mean, <laughs> it just will not go beyond two. Whereas the downstream, yeah, yeah, that that's that's like uh, throwing the dice. I mean, I I never know when it's going to come up with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. So you don't have burstable upstream, is what you're what you're saying, right? Uh, th- there is a boost option available, but I don't think it's on by default. Okay. So uh, no, okay. No, their standard service, I think, is still advertised as 15 up, two down. Yeah. Megabits per second. Yeah, I, um, I'll do, I'll do a quick speed test here. Like, what could, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm only streaming the show to everybody in the chat room you and could, you. Uh, 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 I, that's right. So my download speed was uh, rated at 64 uh, megabits per second. Yeah. And my upstream, as I'm speaking to you, is, uh, is about eight megabits per second but it it typically goes higher than that but you know i'm I'm pushing other data out too so it's probably not the smartest time to do actually rated at 9.74 so there you go Mm. and i think i think i'm actually supposed to get 20 and and four but it it bursts so it's good anyway you gotta have a doxis three you know your problem might be your modem john you might not be right i just got i just got a exchange it yeah because i had that same problem a couple of years ago and i called them up they're like no you should get faster they're like well let's check out your modem and it, here's here's another tip for everybody it's it's a good idea to at least investigate replacing your cable modem every couple of years especially if you're renting it there's no reason not to replace it if you're renting it if you own it uh obviously you want to make sure that a replacement's going to make it faster but uh there have been a lot of advances in technology in terms of cable modems. And even if you don't really think you need, you know, the latest and greatest Doxis three, you might actually get better speeds without paying anymore um, for your service. Anyway, not yeah. paying anymore. Cause yeah. I know our network is capable because I mean, they have this, um, uh, you know, triple play deal where you do everything yeah. on one modem. Yeah. And in that case, it has to be a Doxis three modem. If for for no other reason, they handle the bandwidth of of the you know all the different services I, they're offering you. Actually, that's not true because I did a triple play on a, or a Doxis it could two. Be because all right, yeah. I'm saying it because my parents, I think they got the triple deal and a precondition for that. And actually, when I talked last to my yeah. company too, they're like, oh well, if you get our triple system, then yeah, we're going to give you a new modem that's a Doxis right. three. So right. so it's not a requirement, but it, it typically justifies them upgrading you to yep. that type of modem just yep. because you're doing more through it. But yeah, it, it, you don't need it. But the phone stuff operates on a separate band. It's a it's a whole different thing. So it shouldn't. It, well, oh yeah, okay. yeah, it's a different it's a different deal. But uh, it does not it does not utilize the same bandwidth that you're 
your cable signal is using. So the, the, the Doxis 3, uh, Doxis 1 and Doxis 2 essentially, I know I'm going to get this wrong as I'd say all the time, but uh, I'm going to get close enough. Doxis 1 and Doxis 2 used uh, one channel Essentially, I mean, just and, and when I say channel, I mean, it's like tuning a channel on your TV. It's just a channel your TV can't yeah. get. No, I talked about this. Yeah. It, the bandwidth being about. It, it, but it used one channel up and one channel for down for Doxis 1 and 2. Doxis 3, um, essentially, the big speed boost there comes from the fact that it can bond multiple channels together for your upstream and your downstream. Right now, my downstream is made up of four channels and my upstream is made up of two channels um, and they're bonded together and it doesn't, you know, I don't have to do anything funny on this end. The cable modem takes care of it, but that's where you start getting your enhanced speeds. Right. From. So, cause yeah. I think a single channel is typically 40 megabits. Yeah, I think that might or depending be right. on the implementation, but, yeah. but yeah, no, you're right. You know, it's very similar to what they're doing on Wi-Fi Now the same thing is that a lot of N implementations may be multi-channel N. So you get multiple, 802.11 n channels and then all of a sudden it goes you know because i've yeah. seen things advertised oh 300 megabits per second right it's like well hmm. yeah if, as long as everybody supports multiple channels right that's right um uh prefly t in the chat room uh, suggests that even if you're not going to replace your cable modem simply restarting your cable modem taking power out wait about 10 seconds plug it back in and let it power cycle um, oftentimes will give you faster speeds on, especially on Comcast. That happens a lot. If they update, which they've done, they, they Comcast recently in the past six months or so kind of went through and, and updated everybody and said, okay, you get more speed at, at all your tiers, but it does not happen automatically. It's actually a software profile that needs to be installed in your modem. And that profile is only updated when you restart your modem. In fact, every time you restart your modem, it downloads this profile. They did it here too. The yeah. Same thing. I got an email from Opt Online saying, you know, we're doing something on the back end, and uh, if you want to get the most benefit, uh, cycle power on your modem uh, exactly tomorrow after we're done. Yeah. So yeah. So it renegotiates. You know, I guess it rechecks. You know, the voltage levels and the power levels, and maybe yeah, it's updating the firmware or, or whatever in the modem. That's exactly right. But you you have to yank the power to make that happen. Yep. Yeah. Or because the- I noticed that after I did it after they said it. Number one, the weird thing is that the lights on my modem now are all on steady all the time. Oh, there's one modem. There's one light. Yeah, because before the lights were blinking kind of in reaction to traffic on the network, either up or down. Sure. Now they're all on except one light that flashes saying, yes, I'm working. They're all green, which is good. You know, green lights staying on is is pretty cool. But before they used to to blink. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. I, 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 we can we can resume this, but I do want to make sure we oh, yes. uh, address uh, sponsor number two for this show, which is Gazelle at Gazelle dot com. And uh, and Gazelle is the play. In fact, this reminds me, I have to pack my daughter's uh, old iPod touch into a box tonight because Gazelle is the place to send your old iPods, iPhones, uh, iPads and turn them magically into cash. Now, of course, it's not really magic. They're buying them from you uh, and and either recycling them or, you know, in the case of stuff that's still valuable, they they then can, you know, resell them out. Uh, but they make it so easy. Uh, you can visit them on your, on your Mac or on your iPhone. They've got a great mobile interface and it doesn't cost you anything to find out what your stuff is worth, but you go to uh, gazelle.com and you go through and tell them what you have. And so, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did it with my daughter's iPod 
And we, you know, said, yeah, it was, you know, this generation, it's this big, it was this color. And actually, I guess there weren't colors then. Maybe there were. Uh, and then, uh, you know, d- does it have engraving? Does it still work? Is the screen cracked? You answer all the questions and they say, and then they ask, you know, what condition is it in? And boom, they say, here's what we're going to pay you for it. Okay. And if you agree, you say, great. And then a box shows up and you slip the iPod into the box, close up the box, send it off. So far, you've spent no money and you're not going to spend any money. You're only going to receive money. Uh, and then you ship it off. Once they get it, they process it. Make sure that it is what you said it was. Confirm the condition. And if all is exactly what you thought, uh, they send you your money, PayPal, or they'll send you a check uh, or they'll even send you Amazon money. Uh, and I think you even get a little bit more. They'll give you a 5% bump if you if you do it uh, in Amazon dollars. But uh, if they disagree on the condition, they'll let you know. And if they don't, uh, if you don't want it for whatever price they're, you know, the, the, the new number is. They'll just send it back again. You've spent nothing. All the shipping is on them. So uh, it's really easy. And, you know, when we went to do this uh, for my daughter's iPod, we checked everybody and Gazelle was the one that was going to give us the most. Um, And that's been pretty consistent for me. So it's uh, very easy for me to to announce them as a sponsor because I can also endorse them because I do use them. Uh, like I said, we're we're in the midst of doing that now. In fact, I got to send it off because we've been delaying on this box. I don't know why we've been busy, but uh, but this ad will remind me to do it. So that's a good thing. So check it out because dot com and in the in the checkout process, you can tell them where you heard uh, heard from it. And uh, and we certainly appreciate that. You just choose Mac Geek Gab. They've got us in a drop down there. So check it out. Gazelle dot com. It's just easy. In fact, it's just good to do anyway, just to get a feel for what your stuff is worth at any point in time. Because, you you know, you might be thinking, well, I could downgrade or not downgrade. I could, uh, I guess, downgrade in size, right? You know, I've got this iPad third gen. Do I want an iPad mini? Yeah, maybe. What's my iPad third gen work? Easy, you know, worth easy. I check it out on Gazelle. Turn it into cash. Go buy your iPad mini. You can do that, too. So check it out. Gazelle.com. Uh, all right, John, where are we going here? You want to, uh, we, we can do a couple, three, four more. I don't know. I got a little time. We started early today. So, uh, you want to do David? David, I think we could. Okay. Oh, hold on. All right. Well, we'll do Paul and then we'll do David. We'll just, we'll just reverse the order. Cause just that way it works. Paul was an interesting one. Paul, um, Paul writes, didn't it used to be that if you didn't want your password stored in mail, you could leave the password field blank in the account configuration panel. Then you would be prompted for a password when checking mail for that account. And if mail uh, and, and then again, you'd be prompted for a password the first time uh, you, you uh, check mail after launching mail. And then again, if mail was closed and reopened. There was a checkbox for offering to store the password in the keychain, which you could leave unchecked in Mountain Lion. It doesn't work this way. Uh, If you don't enter a password when setting up an account, it still prompts you the first time it tries to retrieve mail. But there's no checkbox to ask permission to save it in the keychain. The password is then automatically saved in the keychain and you are never again prompted for a password. Even if you try to delete the password from an account preference panel, keychain fills it back in. Any idea on how to get the old behavior back? So he's right. Uh, there is no checkbox left in Mountain Lion, and there really is no way to get exactly this behavior back. Um, 
you can go into keychain access, uh, which is in your applications utilities folder, and you can find this mail password stored there. Uh, and you can remove the, the password from keychain, but it will likely uh, and it will definitely restore that password in the keychain the next time you type it into mail. Um, the other option would be uh, you could you can mess around if you go and find that entry in keychain access, you can go to the access control tab and either remove mail from apps that are accessed or you can have it ask for your keychain password. Uh, and there's a little checkbox there. So that's another way to do this. And that might help. But if your keychain's unlocked, uh, it may not approximate the, quite the same behavior. Another way to do it, and this is something to think about, not just for this, but kind of for anything where you're using uh, Mac OS X to store your passwords or uh, authentication in a keychain. Typically, we all use one keychain in Mac OS 10, but you can set up multiple keychains. And what's cool about multiple keychains is you can have one, say your main one that's unlocked when you log in and everything, it stays unlocked until you log out, but you can set up a second keychain that does not follow that pattern. Uh, it could even have a different password. You could set it to auto lock after five minutes or auto lock immediately. And you could store your mail stuff in that keychain just by dragging it into that one. And then it will store there. So you could set that keychain to lock after five minutes and then your mail, when you check, yes, it's, uh, it's storing it in the keychain, the password, but you're forcing that keychain to authenticate more frequently. So it may give you that, you know, it may approximate the security that you had previously that you no longer can do. So that's, uh, that's my thoughts on mail and key. Really, really, it's the, just kind of an opportunity to teach about keychains is, is what it is because there's a lot more to that than than initially meets the eye there is and i want to drill down a bit on something that you brought up that we haven't touched on that much so i want to just mention it again here so when yeah, you are in the keychain access and typically under i think the user keychain or at least where i'm looking under the passwords category and then the specific keychain would be the one for my account you will see passwords for things like uh, and typically the category is internet password for example, here I'm looking and I have one for one of my email accounts. But as they pointed out, um, you can right click on one of those and then say get info and it'll show two categories of information. One is attributes and one is access control. And actually, I've seen this briefly in the past, Dave, but now that you mention it again, I think it's important because one of the things when you click on the access control part here, it'll say what you stated in ask for keychain password, and that's an extra option. But the other thing that I think is interesting is it says always allow access by these applications. And it's a great way to fine tune the behavior of who or what will um, ask or not ask for a password. Ah. So, uh, because I've had to come up with with other issues here is that this dialogue can operate in mysterious ways or, or you, you may see very strange behavior because of the way this dialogue is set up, not only in if or when it asks for a password, but what apps it kind of gives a pass to or, or not. So. It's yeah. Not. Yeah. 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 And that might work. I don't I, I, I you know, yeah, that might do it. Very good. All right. You want to, uh, you want to do David? Is it time? David. Or do you want to do it? David? <laughs> David, what is, why can't I find anything today? I don't know what's up here. Here we go. 
All right. See attach photos. Is this a bug with iMessage or a user setup using iPhone 5 and 4 on iOS 6? Uh, basically what he does, he tries to uh, send yeah, a message with iMessage. Yeah, yeah I got to look at this here. So basically it's uh, sending uh, an iMessage between two iDevices. As we mentioned here, iPhone 5, 4S, both on iOS 6. Uh, when trying to send a picture, what happens is when on two, uh, when on the same Wi-Fi network, everything's great. When on two different Wi-Fi networks, pictures show up as not delivered. Basically, what the picture shows here is uh, taking a photo and then sending it. And what you'll see in, in um, iMessage or the Messages app, if you're on an iOS device, is red text well, first you'll see a big exclamation point next to the picture and then a big exclamation point, I guess, next to the uh, text saying not delivered. And uh, we got a good nugget of data here as far as uh, it, it works great on when it's on one Wi-Fi network, but it's on two different ones. It doesn't. And how do you solve this? And, you know, I haven't really done a lot of um, iMessage debugging here, but I found someone who had. On this wonderful article here titled iOS Problems Fix, iMessage Not Delivered. And it says all of the places you can look here within iMessage on your iOS device uh, or otherwise to uh, fix these problems here. And after looking through this list, the one that I would suggest, Dave, in, in which I recall I did have problems mm-hmm. was the caller ID. Sometimes what caller ID or IDs you have enabled uh, could impact your ability to receive a message. Because a lot of times it's either a phone number or an email address. And 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 I found when I was setting it up, if I didn't have both of those defined, uh, strange things would happen. So uh, this has, uh, not going to go through all of them, about 11 categories of things you can try to change. But that's the one that jumps out as me as, as one that uh, I've had issues with in the past. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, this is weird because it works on the local network. Presumably, iMessage is smart enough to use Bonjour and just talk locally so that it's not trying to send, you know, out via the Internet for whatever reason. Um, But it won't work when they're on two different Wi-Fi networks. So I'm going to presume that there's nothing. Well, maybe not presume that, you know, what's different about these networks. Um, One of the things that came to mind, but your blog post also mentions here uh, is What's the DNS entry set to on, you know, these other Wi-Fi networks? Is there something blocking uh, iMessage from talking to Apple's server or causing it to fail when it when it tries to look up Apple's server address or or something like that? Um, because that obviously, if it can't talk to Apple's server, it's not it's not that your data goes through Apple's server, but it Apple's server is kind of used to connect your two clients to each other and say, yeah, that's where this one is. That's where this one is. So there could be something specific hmm, about your your wireless networks or your router or, you know, that that's blocking that from happening. Um, it, the, the, the devices are both iPhones. So what happens when neither is on a Wi-Fi network and you're both just using like 4G, right? That that would be a good test because that way, you know, AT&T's network or Verizon's networks are set up properly for iMessage to work. Your home network should be, but it might not. So test it on 4G without Wi-Fi at all and make sure that it works. If it does, then look at your home networks to see or the two networks involved to see what's going on. If it doesn't, then, you know, the only place it works is when you're on the same Wi-Fi network and it can use Bonjour. 
And with that, I would actually um, delete your your uh, iMessage account and re-add it to the phone and see if, you know, kind of something's wrong with the configuration mm. there. Um, so that that's my that's my thought. I don't I, you know, we don't have David's phones here. So we, we as as is as often happens, send can, us your phones. That's right. No, don't. God, we, and we we'll piled up with them. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> no, please don't <laughs> send them to John. Uh, <laughs> no, send them to our sponsor. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Gazelle your phone and get a new one. No, um, I'm sure there's a way to. Solve We're just going to let it sit in a pile in the corner. They're going to give you some dough. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's we, enough for me. Yeah. Though, though I, you know, I have, I got to say now with the workplace, I have uh, now a, both a uh, iPad mini and a full size one. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that. Yeah. 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 That's exciting. It's good stuff. Yeah. 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 I don't spend a lot of time with them, but they're, uh, well, setting it up and, uh, was a very, uh, fluid experience and, uh, no, they're, they're nice to use. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, a couple more tips that we can, uh, that we can share here. Uh, Anthony writes in and says, uh, I've got a couple of tips to share. First is something he found on Mac fix it, which is now of course, uh, at CNET. And, uh, he says it, it, there's a, there's a tip in there of how to unlink files on OS 10. You can of course link files to applications. What he's talking about is when you double click an app, uh, it opens in a specific application. Uh, you can set, you know, things to open in word or pages or, you know, whatever you like by highlighting the file, choosing get info. And then, uh, in there, there is the open with section and you can set that to, to what you want. And you can also click change all so that all files of the same type will, uh, move, you know, will open in that application. But suppose you want to unlink a file type and not have it open in any application huh. automatically. There is no way in the UI to do that. And, uh, and Topher Kessler over there at, um, at, at, uh, at Matt fix it, uh, has a, a, a suggestion for this that includes actually using an automator workflow to do it. I don't know if uh, RC default app, John, which is, I know one of your favorite utilities would be able to do this too. You read my mind and I'm almost certain that, but well, it has a listing or it lets you see the mappings for extensions and other things to applications that launch them. So I'm almost certain if you dig around with that app enough, you'll find the entry or entries that will yep. undo that, but it yep. could, uh, yeah, but tread, Carefully. Tread carefully, right. And then uh and then he also points to a tip from our own Jeff Gamut here at TMO that uh that's a great one. In fact, there's we're publishing more tips now than we ever have. So if you uh if you haven't visited Mac Observer lately, check it out because we're really focusing, you know, we're kind of getting away from the uh from sort of the 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 uninteresting news, we're still running a lot of the great analysis of the of kind of the bigger stories, but we're getting away from the press release style news stuff and really focusing on tips and and that sort useful of thing. Useful, yeah, news. useful. Yeah, not that the other news isn't useless, but more useful. Yeah, it's it's we're sort Personal. of you know yeah we're we're focusing a little bit more and it's worked out really well. So uh, so Jeff ran a tip um, on how to. Uh, how to manage your multi-touch gestures on your trackpad or your, you know, magic trackpad or any of that stuff. So, uh, so we will link to that too, because that's what we do. But it's good stuff. And that's I have stuff. a multi-touch gesture I can give Jeff. 
I'm sure you do. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. And, uh, you know, I think uh, oh, we got we got one more while we're while we're linking to to tips. Tony had a, uh, a tip as well for us where he uh, he found an article. Let's see. We found Mac fix it. We got Mac Observer and Tony found one at Macworld UK uh, about how to turn iBooks into audiobooks. And uh, it's actually a pretty cool little little uh, little tip that we will, of course, put in the show notes and all that stuff, too. But you can use Siri on your uh, iPhone or iPad to turn eBooks into audiobooks, And he talks through the process of doing that uh, where you select text and uh, and have it speak it and it will do so. So it's um, it's an interest yet another interesting little kind of hack hackish workaround. So. It's good stuff. You Siri at all, John? I do not currently have a device that supports Siri at home. Right, right. Though the new goodies at work, as right. you probably know, they all support Siri. And so we had a little fun playing around with it and, you know, saying, you know, tell me about Hal and, you of know, course, where do I bury the body and all those knee slappers, you know, the yeah. tricks um, or sing me a song. But other than that, um, I haven't. Uh, it has it not become a part of my daily routine. And to me, it was just kind of a curiosity. It's like, sure. oh yeah, okay, I can talk to the computer, and most of the times, it understands what I'm saying. But did I tell you that while I was at South by Southwest, I checked out the new Chevy cars that have uh, Siri integration in in the car itself? It, it's actually really mm-hmm. smart. They, you know, obviously we've got we've had cars with voice recognition and navigation features and all that stuff for a long time. But that's really, it, you know, the, the car companies get a ton of money for that stuff. Um, and it's that, that gets more and more frustrating as uh, we now all carry devices in our pockets that can do some or all of that stuff on their own. But even for me, still the reason that I buy, you know, navigation when we buy a new car is because I want it to use the built in screen in the car. I don't want to have to have a clip and wires and all that stuff. So, you know, you pay a little bit extra, sometimes a couple of grand extra for the cars built in nav. Well, Chevy's got cars coming out now. I, the one I sat in, I mean, I think it was like a $16,000 car and it had a screen, but no guts and the guts were your iPhone. And so you plug your iPhone in or you can do it with an Android phone and they they have apps in the car, and so they were using you know a, a, they 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 partnered with a map provider, and you download the app for your iPhone, and boom, you get maps, but you get them on the screen in the car, and Pandora, and you know, oh, man, it's so. What's wrong with you people, man? I just want nice analog gauges that tell me what's going on here. I don't want a, a video game. Come on, but that's the thing is it's not a video game, right? Because you're you're not yes, looking at your phone. It's distracting. You're doing it with your voice or the. Yeah, cars. you're looking at your mesmerized by your dashboard yeah, absolutely your phone. well that's how i am Still now a with, problem with all the gauges i just added with my software <laughs> i know, I know. Yeah. but no it's really cool what 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 chevy's doing and it was it's really impressive i mean it's a really smart way of doing this because you you get to you know you get to use that device that you've already bought to do all these things and so you your price of your car i mean it you know 16 grand have in dash nav yep. It's crazy. You shouldn't be able to do all those things. That's Back right. in my day, we didn't have that option and we liked it. Yeah. I, well, it's, I mean, the, the, the in-dash stuff, because I've done it both ways. I've done it with the iPod on the mount or the iPhone on the mount and the in-dash. And the in-dash stuff is way safer 
than mounting your iPhone because the because you're because you're using the car's UI. So you're not trying to fumble with your iPhone and the small little screen. You've got mm-hmm. controls on your on your steering wheel and voice control and all of that stuff. So, well, it's pretty cool. Yes, I, I do fumble with my iPhone in ways every now and then. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's cool. It's cool. So, yeah, it was part of Chevy's, you know, find new roads program at, at, uh, at South by Southwest. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, you never know. I mean, if, if what my car is telling me is right, then I may be looking at. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a transmission problem, then uh, this could be. Oh, that's the end. The that's end. right. Yeah. Yeah. It well, it could be a pri- uh, one of the more pricey repairs I've had to get done. Right. Right. All right. Well, that does bring us to the band. And time to uh, time to wrap up this MacGeekab Fest. If you want to contact us, feedback at MacGeekab.com is the email address to start with. You can send email, text, pictures, videos, cookies, whatever you want, all to the feedback at MacGeekab.com. And Dave is absolutely correct. Uh, brownies, I think, may be pushing it. But um, if you wanted to send them... <laughs> By whatever means possible, you would send them feedback at MacGeekab.com. That's right. Uh, if you want to do that in an even easier way, you can use the MacGeekab app, which is available on the App Store. Uh, not only can you listen to the show in the app, uh, you can send feedback in. And if you send feedback while you're listening to the app, uh, it tags it with what show you were listening to and where in the show you were. So if it's related to something in the show, we've got it right there. If it's not, that's fine. Audio comments, you can record right there inside the app. So it really is the best way to interact with us. Check it out on the App Store, uh, the Mac Geek Gab app. We would love it if you used it. We also send out push notifications when we're going live in the stream. And you can watch, you can listen to the stream and even participate in the chat room right from within inside the app. And uh, so thanks to Corey and and uh, the team at BitSuites for all the work that they do for us on the app. Yep. How else, John? Um, Facebook. Facebook.com slash MacGeekAb where you can see notifications about upcoming episodes. Notifications yep. when certain things are posted. And just place to hang out and ask questions and maybe get the answered uh, either by... Uh, Dave or me or someone else on the uh, on the Facebooks. That's right. Um, and then, of course, there's the Twitters. I am John Efron. He is Dave Hamilton. The podcast is Mac Geekab, and the publication is Mac Observer. You can you can call us if all else fails, and you just want to pick up the phone and call us. Two zero six 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 Geek is the number to call. And Geek, of course, John is four thousand. 335? That's right. Can I say that? I think I can say that. You can. You're technically not supposed to say the and in there, right? And is only the decimal point. So. thousand. I thought thousand. Yeah. I, I heard you. Heard, I heard four, you say that. Three, three, five. That's right. right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and you can always visit us at, uh, at uh, on Sundays at some point, com slash stream. If you log in there, we typically have the time of the next show posted but we also post that to facebook if you like us on facebook all right uh, i believe that does it i would like to make sure we thank michael johnston for converting this show from AA to aac uh, and adding all those chapters uh michael of course is from the we have communicators podcast podcast and get uh but today is michael's birthday so make sure you say happy birthday to michael 
Uh, all the bandwidth comes to get the show from us to you comes from Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And of course, our podcast marketplace includes BB Edit from Barebone Software, the new PDF Pen 6 from Smile, Gazelle, as we mentioned in the show, Crash Plan, as we've mentioned in the show, and of course, Squarespace, the coupon code at Squarespace, MGG4 for the month of April. Thank you so much for listening. We definitely appreciate your listening, your support, your supporting the sponsors, your questions. And so for you, we do have one lasting piece of advice, and that is don't get caught. Made up.